0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast.
1: We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it.
0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 43, A Dark and Stormy Night, where we will be looking at Chapters 90 and 91 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of Explosive Resolution. Now, historically, we've done a recap and then an interesting fact of the week in addition to our thing of the week and for Nemos. but, you know, we've been very busy over the past couple months moving and settling in, and we're frankly, well, we're old and tired and... Don't feel like it yet, but we're thinking really hard about it.
1: We're thinking really hard about it when our kind of unfortunately not well cat wakes us up five times in the middle of the night to demand food that she didn't eat during the day. We're thinking about it really hard when we're looking at half built Ikea furniture or knowing that we're going to get wallpaper in a couple of days that needs to go up before we have a visit from your family.
0: Yeah, so uh, those things will continue to be things that we just think really hard about. But rest assured, we're thinking about them.
1: And we're thinking about restarting them.
0: We're thinking about it.
1: (laughs) Anyway, in case you're new here, why are you starting in the middle?
0: Because that's when it showed up on your podcast feed.
1: Fair enough. But secondly, little introduction to the pod. Each week we'll be examining section of the Wise Man's Fear Through a Chosen Lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. Then we will share a recommended thing of the week and then we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives and somewhere in there we will probably have a fornemos before we begin let's get some disclaimers out of the way first of all we are in no way affiliated with patrick rothfuss or his publisher daw books second spoilers especially this episode actually because this episode covers some important with a capital i important things And also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring.
0: Thank you. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in, shall we?
1: Yes. First though, content warning. This section of the book is brutal. It's violent. It's uncomfortable. It's, I guess the best way to put it is it's showing us Kvoth's nature when it's untethered and it's kind of gross- Everyone just wants to go home. And Quoth's answer to this is to stop meandering through the path and just directly end.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about it. So we have our first chapter, and this is chapter 90 to sing a song about, which picks up where we left off last time with Quoth and Tempe and Martin inspecting the bodies of the bandits that Tempe killed.
1: And we learn a little bit more about Tempe and his attitude towards killing, towards the dead, towards his enemies.
0: The first thing that we notice is that Tempe wants Quoth to ask permission to inspect them.
1: Because they're not Quoth's dead. Tempe's the one that killed them. Tempe now has dominion over them?
0: I'd say responsibility for them.
1: That's a better word. That's a much better word. And then... He's also a little worried that Quoth will desecrate them by the use of magic.
0: Yeah, like he's worried that there might be some sort of, you know, funny business, whether that's mutilating or otherwise just generally making a mockery of them.
1: And Tempi has respect for the dead, even if they were going to otherwise kill him.
0: I think part of it is the Adem way does not allow for dehumanizing, which is... Contrary to what you would see in most contemporary action cinema, for instance.
1: Dead body, who cares now? They no longer are a person. They are a thing. They are an object and an obstacle.
0: So the other thing that we learn here is that these aren't just disgruntled farmhands that decided to take up banditry. These look to be veteran soldiers.
1: One of them was quite a bit larger than Dedan, a great bull of a man, and they were older than I had expected. Their hands had the calluses that mark long years of working with weapons.
0: This underscores, I think, a theme that we see in the framing device, which is the line between a professional soldier and a bandit is really just what kind of times they've fallen on. When there is A defined enemy to fight, they can be soldiers. And when there isn't, they don't have a whole lot of practical skills that they can bring to society. And so the only way that they can make a living is through banditry, which is this really parasitic profession.
1: So we've got Martin coming up and saying, I've got their trail. It's as clear as day a drunk priest could follow it. There's also the word sorceress, which is suspiciously close to Sisura, which is the sword that Both will have that is given to him or earned when he's with the Adem. Another thing I'd like to point out, there's a grumble of thunder. Grumbling of thunder happens multiple times in this little section, and I think that that is a beautiful verb to have in this section for a few reasons. Because Both is known as the thunder and he is just
0: pretty much everybody at this point is grumbling on the edge of explosion martin has felt his energy being sapped by illness Daydan is at his breaking point his morale is at a painfully low moment hespa has had it up to here with pretty much everyone And Kvothe is in over his head.
1: Tempe is Tempe.
0: Tempe actually feels at home in this storm because it reminds him of home.
1: They go ahead and follow this clear as day trail. And I have to say, I think what's really going on here is that the leaders of the bandits have known where these five little upstarts have been this whole stupid time, or at least most of the time. And they're just as sick of this little cat and mouse game as our five protagonist-ish people. So,
0: revealing a little bit of knowledge about what we know about the bandits, I don't think that they are giving a whole lot of thought to five people out to get them.
1: I don't think that they're worried about them. I think that they just want to swat the fly.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's possible that they know that they're being tracked. It's also possible that they don't even consider that anyone would run across them this deep into the woods. Either way, though, one thing that we learn is that these aren't simple bandits. We know that these are experienced fighting men. We know that they know what they're doing. Like, they're not just Robin Hood and his merry men hanging out. These are serious threats.
1: Well, moving on, the next thing I have highlighted after a little break, we're being followed. And we're meant to think as an audience that Quoth and Tempe and Martin are being followed by bandits. But how long did it take you to figure out that the two people that are following them were Dedan and Hespa?
0: Didn't take too long, because neither one of them are really the stay-back-at-camp type.
1: Yeah, as soon as Tempe said there are two people following us. I was just like, yeah. Not even remembering or drawing back on knowledge of listening or reading this book before. Actually, this is still my very first time reading through the book, as in reading with my eyes and not listening to it. I've listened to it a bunch of times. It's not a subtle thing that this would be to Dan and Hespa. So Quoth arranges for Tempe and Martin and him to set a little trap, which they do, and Quoth paints himself as the genius that set everything up and surprised the hell out of the people following, the Dan and Hespa, and it's almost a little bit of competence porn. It's a way for Quoth to ridicule the Dan and to prop himself up.
0: It's also noteworthy that the one who actually diffuses tensions and actually again displays leadership is Martin, who's able to say, look, you guys are spending all of your time trying to prove that you're the best, etc., etc. Like both you're young and inexperienced and technically you're in charge. And when you do good work, it's important that we call that out to show that you are worthy of respect. Daydan, you're an experienced fighting man. You have had a lot of experience in combat. That's important. That's also valuable. You're also not a leader. So in the meantime, let's, let's knock it off. And, you know, he calls out, hey, Quoth did a pretty decent job at the tactics. Again, all of this, of course, is not to say this is what actually happened, because we know that Quoth is an unreliable narrator. But all we've got is the story that he's telling us.
1: Which includes, as soon as Dedan and Hespa show up, thunder rolled over us.
0: Thunder here is the conflict. It is, in this case, it is the conflict between Quoth and Daydan, especially. To a lesser extent, Hespa, but mostly Daydan. And of course, Quoth leaps to just accuse them of gross incompetence and general thoughtlessness and idiocy.
1: So Dedan was the one that instigated the, I'm just going to go follow. And Quoth looks at Hespa and just goes, Why are you here? Well, I didn't want him to go by himself. (sighs) And then, much to Kvothe's chagrin, dismay, of course he did. Dedan reveals that he has also doused the fire and Kvoth is just like, Well, no longer need to worry about my tenuous link to the uh, ash that I have in my pocket. Oh, well.
0: The other thing that's really funny here is, you know, he's talking about all the things that could go wrong. The bandits could find our camp. They could find our fire. They could take all our stuff and they could take my loot. Like this is the thing that he really emphasizes as if this is the most grievous thing that the bandits could do to the camp. And while I understand.
1: Because if somebody took your guitars.
0: I would be miffed. But at the same time.
1: It's a guitar?
0: It's a guitar, and I'm wondering, why would I be taking it out into the woods? And second of all, I'd be thinking, well, ultimately, I'm not going to make the care for my things someone else's concern.
1: I mean, he's got his case, which is what's probably keeping the poor little loot from being absolutely trashed.
0: I mean, it's already gone through multiple shipwrecks
1: at least one. That's true, unlikely but true. So
0: it'll be fine. but yeah the whole like they could steal my musical instrument and they could take our food and they could destroy all the supplies that we need to survive but my musical instrument. if we look at the hierarchy of needs here like I, I kind of look at that and I'm like quote that's a you problem buddy.
1: <laughs> so his next tactic is fine. I can't win. You won't go away. You won't go back to the camp. Fine. But if everyone here dies, it's your fault. Okay? If everyone there dies, Daydan won't care because he will also probably be dead. But it's like the last thing that little kid Kvothe can think of to try to win.
0: Like, his desire to make Daydan stay back at the camp seems to be as much around how he and Dan feel like they are threats to one another as it does to do with any actual competence to do the job.
1: So then Quoth looks at Dan and says, I'll listen to your suggestions, but I give the orders. Follow this last request demand thing and swear it on your name. I do not trust you. And drawing on the story that Hespa told... As soon as Dedan does this, as soon as he swears on his name that he will follow Quoth's orders, Quoth smiles, a smile that told an entire story all by itself. I have your name now, I said softly. I have mastery over you. The look on his face was almost worth a month of his grumbling. I stepped back and let the smile disappear, quick as a flicker of lightning. Quoth is full of himself.
0: Yeah. So I get where he's coming from. Like in this position, they need to, once a decision has been made, actually rally around it and do it, regardless of whatever misgivings everybody might have. And getting to the point where you're saying, okay, I'll listen to objections, but once the time to act has come, we don't revisit those. And that's something that like anyone who's actually had to lead a group project has to deal with. Usually... There's a period of time where it's cool to have sort of that round table, no bad ideas, and then you pick things apart and listen to objections. And eventually you have to decide on something. And once your group has decided on something, whether it's via vote or executive fiat or whatever, for the purposes of actually completing the assignment, it doesn't matter. As once that decision has been arrived at, you got to let all of those drop. There's no more time for grumbling. There's no more time for anything else. At that point, it's time to act. And Quoth is basically saying, okay, I'm going to say that because I'm the one who's in charge here, you're going to have to follow my orders. Even if you don't like it. Now, that said both is also offering to listen to objections once they're presented and consider them but he still is the one who gets the final say
1: at least according to him in the framing device yeah anyway we get another one of those little breaks the rain is continuing to pelt down this fading light has been taking forever to finally fade and i gotta say so the room we are in right now gets excellent light throughout the entire day, especially morning light, but afternoon light also. We have witnessed every type of weather that is normal for the beginning of April in our area, all in the span of a few hours. And when it gets dark because of the rain, it gets dark. Like, to the point where I would need to turn the overhead light on to see things like Legos to build. Or Lego sets. If we are going to be pedantic, okay, fine. And I will be. But, like, the instructions, I can no longer read. And I can no longer tell the difference between the dark brown, the dark green, and the dark gray. And the only reason I can tell the black is because it's outlined in white. So... (laughs) I can't imagine how absolutely miserably unable to see, plus being in the downpour, plus being like annoyed at one another and on high alert for people that want to kill them. But man, (laughs) the fading light has been fading for a very, very, very long
0: time. Maybe it's late summer. Maybe. I mean, theoretically, it would kind of have to be because you couldn't do this in the winter.
1: It also would be snowing more than likely.
0: Exactly. So they come up with their plan. And going forward here, it's pretty much dark out. And so they're limited by what they can see through the fading light. And it's dim and hard to see and make out details until you get a flash of lightning. And then you see everything (laughs) and then nothing. And in one of these flashes of lightning, they make out their first sentry.
1: The first person that they've seen in these woods, the first person that Martin or Quoth have seen, specifically in this case, they've left Dedan and Hespa behind them again. Why? So stupid. (laughs) But they go off on their own, trying to find the trail to whatever camp. They still probably think that the camp is small. And yeah, they see someone outlined in silhouette up on a hill. The thunder came an instant later, deafening me as well. So if they can see the sentry, the sentry can probably also see them. They duck, they hide, and then they kill the person. Much like the way that I imagine if we ever did have visitors from like an alien world or civilization, the first instinct that at least people in our country would have, kill it!
0: I mean, to be fair, they have gone out here specifically to hunt and kill bandits.
1: Accurate, but it's just no thought to capture, to try to determine how many bandits there are by asking or interrogating. Nothing.
0: They don't have the time for that. Probably. And what's also cool is Martin gets to roll an at 20 here. Because he manages to one-shot kill the guy.
1: With a bow and arrow.
0: A shot to the heart. Martin's basically sitting here saying, I hope we didn't use up all our luck on that one. As any D&D player knows, it's always cool when you get the nat 20, but you're really hoping, I hope that wasn't the last one I'll get.
1: (laughs) I hope that that wasn't, like, I got a nat 20 on my initiative, or I got a nat 20 on my perception, or I got a nat 20 on...
0: A meaningless skill check.
1: Right. <laughs> on the group stealth check. <laughs> yeah. But yes, at this point, we go to chapter 91 Flame, Thunder, Broken Tree. Our three protagonistish people are on the ridge looking down over the bandits' camp.
0: And it's not so much a camp as it is a bivouac
1: an encampment
0: yeah they've got six field tents plus a larger pavilion a couple bonfires or would be bonfires if it weren't so wet and martin is convinced based on a quick dead reckoning that it's probably at least 20 people in there that's a lot more than they signed up for tempe advises that probably the best way to do this is a slow battle of attrition picking them off a few at a time, and then luring them out into traps.
1: I mean, that's how I play Skyrim.
0: That's not the fun way to play Skyrim. It is for me. My way to play Skyrim is to charge in with my great axe and swing it around, and then realize to my horror that my horse decided to stupidly follow me into battle and then get hit with my backswing. <laughs>
1: You were such a horse murderer by accident.
0: Oh, I know. Like, every single time I got a horse, like, it would just die stupidly. Like, there was, like, the time I rode it off of a cliff. That was on me. I'll own that one. There was the time the horse decided to attack a giant, and then it got launched into space. There was the time the horse got eaten by wolves. (laughs) Like... Yeah, all of these times, like I'd get a horse, I'm like, all right, this is a great way to travel around Skyrim. And then as soon as I'd run into any encounter, the horse would try and help and it would just get in the way. And then usually it ended up getting hit with my axe on the backswing. And like, it was really frustrating, I got to say, because <laughs> you just watch this horse just crumple with one hit. And so I'm just sitting here like, OK, uh. And then it would also use at least one charge on my magic weapon too. And I'm just like, (laughs) ah, I used a charge on my magic weapon to kill my horse by accident.
1: As frustrating as that was for you, it was very entertaining for me.
0: Like, I didn't have a horse that could reliably survive until I completed the Dark Brotherhood quest and got the horse off of that one. Because that horse is invincible. And that one was actually a horse that was worthy of staying by my side. All those other horses just, ugh, too stupid to live.
1: (laughs) Considering that they are digital horses, I'm okay with this. Anyway. Somehow during just going back to the story, somehow during the adrenaline rush of, oh, my God, look at what's down there or how many people there are. And, oh, God, we're screwed we also get a little bit of time for Martin to chide Kvothe a little bit and say, Dadan's not really as bad as all that. He's not half the, the Ash. He seems to be most of the time. And that is said just in time for the assumption of a hubbub in the camp being related to the bandits capturing Dadan and Hespa, because did they listen to Kvothe? Did they follow Quoth's orders?
0: Technically, they did. It's just that because they weren't able to determine whose path was theirs and whose path was the bandits, they followed the wrong path. They followed ten minutes back. They followed Quoth's orders correctly.
1: No, they followed less than ten minutes back. Dedan got impatient.
0: I'm going to still say that even if he had waited the ten minutes, he still would have blundered into the camp, just as likely.
1: Yeah. That's fair. Well, we find out from Martin, regardless. Dadan and Hesper are just not there anymore. They can't find them. Probably captured. Fun.
0: So that means both Martin and Tempe are left to improvise. And their job gets a lot harder because as soon as the alarm goes up in the camp, they find out that the camp basically has improvised retractable walls that they can roll out at a moment's notice to give themselves cover from archers especially. So suddenly that means they can't rely on Martin's sharpshooting.
1: Men were swarming from the low tents like hornets from a nest. Within seconds, the vulnerable, wide-open camp became a veritable fortress. I counted at least 16 men, but now whole sections of the camp were cut off from view. The light was worse as well, as the makeshift walls blocked the fires and cast deep shadows against the night. Both Martin and Tempe are now useless. And the only thing that's pretty much saving their bacon is that no one's paying attention to that one little section of the ridge.
0: Right. Because as bumbling as Dedan is here, he's at least serving as a distraction. And nobody in the camp knows that Tempe and Martin and Kvothe are out in this direction. But again, there's more of them than Martin's got arrows. He doesn't have good line of sight on them. And... If he starts letting fly, people can start using his arrows to trace back where they are. And there are a lot more of them, and they all have arrows. Like, if I think back to D&D, and a lot of things go back to D&D.
1: Especially when it gets to action set pieces.
0: Like If I think about the times when, as a dungeon master, I've pulled off a TPK or a near TPK, it's very rarely things like, you know, it's a dragon or it's a, you know, it's a beholder or a Demi Lich or whatever. though Those can definitely do it. It's when you've got a lot of archers.
1: It's when you've got a lot of little swarmy bits.
0: Yeah, they can attack from range and that, you know, a few lucky crits and, you know, that party is toast. And you're rolling a lot of dice, and there's a lot of opportunities for things to go
1: awry. As a player, there is a specific noise that you never want to hear.
0: Yeah, that's bad news. That's the sound of lots of archers taking lots of pot shots at your players.
1: If you'll forgive me, I now need to stick all of my dice that I put in my hands back in my bag. So
0: yeah, like I say, that's a TPK of Bruin right there.
1: Now, the next thing he says, quoth, he says, this was the time when a skilled arcanist should be able to tip the scales. If not to give us an advantage, then at least to make an escape possible. But I had no fire, no link. And there's a part of me that's like, other than plot reasons, why couldn't he have used fire in the camp? Because he's said over and over again that a bad link doesn't necessarily mean no link. Why couldn't he have pulled energy from their fires instead of pulling energy from his own body? Because he specifically also said that he didn't throw out the ash. It's still in his pocket. It was still linked to a fire. I think that Quoth was being stupid or inconsistency.
0: I'm willing to believe Quoth is being stupid. I think it's an oversight. Fair enough. Like, it's not a plot hole if you assume that Kvothe sometimes makes mistakes.
1: But Kfoth doesn't think that Kfoth makes mistakes.
0: I'm willing to accept hypocrisy.
1: (laughs) That is a fair point. Well, we've got more rain, more grumbling thunder, and more basically, my pants, what do I do? And the only thing that Kvothe... Can think of to do this clever boy this clever arcanist this person who prides himself on being smart on thinking outside the box on thinking of things he could do to save his own bacon is to mutilate a corpse
0: well it is outside the box it is i think really what it shows is that when kvothe's survival is on the line or the accomplishment of his objectives is on the line Morality is not his first concern. And I don't have a problem with that. It is part of what makes Quoth an interesting anti hero. He portrays himself as a hero, but he is an anti hero in that he does what he thinks will get the job done, not necessarily what he thinks is right. And the interesting thing is sometimes how he justifies it, how he wrestles with it or doesn't. You know, I mean, fiction is filled with anti heroes.
1: I mean, I love Deadpool.
0: Yeah, Deadpool's a classic, you know, and then you also have, if you look at, like, Game of Thrones, pretty much everybody in the Song of Ice and Fire is an antihero of some stripe, and the ones who aren't die pretty quickly. They're punished for their heroism. Yeah, he's in a position where a hero would probably die. Being the noble heroic person probably isn't going to get Kvoth out of this situation alive. It probably isn't going to let him accomplish his goals, in this case, just to survive the night. So yes, he sacrifices his morals. And in this case, his only nod towards decorum is to ask Martin for the use of his dead. Use of dead is, well, I mean, it it calls to my necromancy.
1: But it's also an absent-minded, Martin, may I use your dead? And then he goes and just stabs the body. It really does show bits of Foth's character that we have not really seen in an extreme way. His self-preservation, because let's not pretend that this is about anything other than that, his sense of self-preservation is so strong that he doesn't have moral objections to doing things that others might consider heinous. He doesn't even have any qualms about scaring the living out of his companions And not only that, losing the respect or trust of his companions by doing these grotesque and heinous things. His companions, especially Martin, are very suspicious already, very superstitious. They don't like magic. They don't feel comfortable knowing that Kvothe can do these things. And instead of doing the things that are somewhat benign, Quoth is doing a thing that is horrifying to watch. And afterward, he's pretty much going to be like, what? I was saving us.
0: Yeah, I don't have a huge problem with what Quoth did. Mostly because I'm a materialist. I don't really believe in the existence of souls or anything like that. And once someone is dead, their corpses meet. But...
1: I mean, he does say the knife was moving more and more slowly. It felt more like I was cutting wood than flesh. I don't want to go into every little instance of Quoth using his own body heat to make a link to bind this corpse with a living human so that he can then kill said living human. But there's an interesting thing that does happen. Quoth is unwilling to maim the corpse's hands. Again... Quoth, showing his own character, his own selfishness, his own me-first attitude on literally everything. So much so that he is projecting that onto the dead person he is mutilating.
0: I think it's the limits of the golden rule. Like, it's all well and good to treat others how you would want to be treated. But there's some limits to that because it means that you oftentimes just end up projecting the things that you would want onto them. The things that you care about onto
1: them. You're not caring about what they want. To me, the golden rule is not, well, I don't eat meat very often, so I assume that no one else would want to eat meat very often. So I assume that if I don't want to have something that is made with ground beef, that my guests also don't want something that is made with ground beef. Rather than, the things that bring me comfort include this, and what I want is comfort. And what my guests want is comfort. And so I want to find out what comfort is to them. It's equity rather than equality.
0: So Quoth is able to use this link with the dead sentry and the people down in the camp to take out, by my count, three of the soldiers.
1: Okay, I'll go with that. I'm not going to revisit that myself because I felt uncomfortable.
0: That's fair. At this point, the leader of the bandits reveals himself.
1: As I watched him stride across the encampment, I was reminded of something. He stood in plain view, not bothering to crouch behind one of the protective walls. He gestured to his men, and something in that motion was terribly familiar.
0: We will find out later that this was Cinder. Again, this makes me wonder, like, this is a small potatoes plot in the overarching scheme of things like for some ancient evil or whatever banditry stealing taxes what the hell
1: it's almost like maybe that's not what they were actually doing
0: there could be something else
1: i would hope that there's something else
0: i mean it's also possible that the chandrian are just actually a lot dumber than people give them credit for not willing to rule that one out what's their plan well that's the secret they don't have one (laughs)
1: Cinder just wants to make everybody's life low-grade miserable.
0: Yeah, actually, I, I could see that. If his goal is to undermine civilization, so taxation is what makes public goods possible. It's what enables the government to actually provide services to the people under its care. And so if he is stealing tax money from the government, government's solution is typically go back and tax again. And so then people are getting more impoverished for less gain. So more squeeze, less juice. And in so doing, that's how you breed rebellion, because you've basically created a situation where the government can no longer functionally fulfill its duties, and it ceases to provide the benefits that people have come to expect from it. And then the only thing that is keeping the people from rebelling are fear of the governmental armies and or tradition. And if any one of those two breaks, then it gets really tenuous. So maybe that's what his plot is.
1: That's a very long-term plot.
0: I mean, but the Chandrian are immortal. They've got time for that.
1: But it also seems tedious and kind of boring.
0: I mean, that kind of stuff is but it's effective.
1: Well, back to the action. Martin takes a shot on the leader and the leader kind of just looks at it, triangulates where the shot came from and looks straight at both. basically unaffected by the arrow.
0: This is when Martin begins his prayer litany.
1: Now, is it just me or did um, the leader, Cinder, possibly Brayden, possibly Master Ash? We don't know, but take an arrow to the knee. I think he did. To continue our Skyrim.
0: He used to be an adventurer like you. Until he took an arrow to the knee.
1: Which he then takes out and then tosses in the fire. But it occurs to me, and this is going to make you feel so old, that game is 12 years old. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what you guys all come here for, is the absolutely relevant references that we have towards geek culture, right? Uh... Oh, dear. Yeah, great Tailu, overrule me with your wings, Martin said, his hands falling away from his bowstring. And he just rambles and, you know, I think he's trying to comfort himself to self-soothe by just saying things that sound religious, that bring him some solace, that bring him some grounding force. And Quoth just lowers himself even further into that heart of stone feeling, that meditative state, instead of panicking, because he really could have just panicked and run and pooped himself.
0: Real war guy.
1: Quoth, I don't think ever has struck me as a seed guy, though. No. Anyway. <laughs> the next thing that Quoth does is asks Tempe to bring the sentry's bow so that he can create a link to all of the other archers' bows and sever the bowstring, which I think is actually quite clever because what that does is it could lash against people's hands, face, arms, torso. It could cause real damage if that bowstring is under tension, but it also means that you can't use it.
0: That's probably the big one. It takes five archers off the board. That means that while they are not necessarily easy targets that Quoth and company can pick off from range, it means that they themselves are under less danger and have the ability to close.
1: But meanwhile, he's also starting to suffer from Binder's chills. He can't hold it together anymore. He's chill, he's wet, he's dizzy. And he's still not out of the woods yet, literally or figuratively.
0: He needs a Hail Mary. (laughs) He needs something dramatic, because right now... They don't have the ability to go after these guys one at a time. Martin is not in any shape to do that.
1: He's having a panic attack.
0: I mean, Martin, to, to his credit, let's be real, he has run up against the first target he's ever seen where his one ultimate skill is completely useless. Everything that Martin has seen in his life has led him to believe that if he shoots it with a bow and arrow, it will end that thing's life. It's something that he has always known that he could do to defend himself. And now he has found himself in a situation where no matter how good he is with his bow and arrow, it will
1: not save him. Well, you mentioned that five of the archers were taken out, but at least one was not and kept his wits about him. A gust of wind saved me. His arrow struck harsh yellow sparks from the stone outcrop not two feet from my head. Did he call the wind?
0: The sleeping mind intervenes in those desperate moments. Kvoth hasn't had time to be conscious. He's operating as much on instinct as anything else right now.
1: At this point, he pushes himself back down out of sight and stabs the sentry's body over and over and over in a desperate attempt to save his own life. The blade snaps. He can still hear Martin praying and his own limbs are cold as lead and heavy and awkward not only that he could feel the numb sluggishness of hypothermia he realized he wasn't shivering that's a bad sign that is a really bad sign your body is no longer functioning at that point point. and his reaction to stress is to laugh a terrible laugh and he comes up with the last desperate thing he could possibly think to do They're in the middle of a lightning storm. He's going to use it.
0: May as well. I mean, like I said, it's a Hail Mary. So he has Martin shoot the tree at the center of the encampment. This great old oak tree. And Kfoth is able to bind the metal in the arrowhead to basically the magnetic currents to call the lightning down and strike the tree.
1: And if not obliterate at least distract the entire camp
0: i mean a lightning strike is pretty cataclysmic if you're right next to it it's a lot of energy and it certainly makes a great story there at that point which that's quotes whole deal
1: as martin is praying it's clear that the leader of the camp can hear him suddenly the leader paused and cocked his head he held himself perfectly still as if listening to something Martin took aim at the tree in the center of the camp. Wind buffeted him as he continued to pray. This sounds a little bit, if the wind is under Kvothe's influence, because I won't say control. I don't think it's truly control. Like Kvothe really being just impatient and upset and annoyed and, oh my god, could you stop it? And essentially shaking Martin via the wind. We get a little more of the religious aspect of this story, of this world. Telu, whose eyes are true, watch over me. Telu, son of yourself, watch over me. Telu, who was Minda, who you were, watch over me in Minda's name, in Periel's name, in Ordal's name, in Andon's name. Watch over me.
0: I kind of get the sense that even if Martin himself isn't especially religious, he's grown up in a... Religious saturated environment.
1: Do you remember Trappist? Yeah. Do you remember the stories?
0: Mm-hmm. So in this moment, that's what he turns to is this cultural context that he's grown up in, and he turns to it as something to keep himself moving, so he can take the final action that he can think of, which is again shooting the tree, because that's what he's been told to do. He's on autopilot right now.
1: The leader turned his head as if to search the sky for something. Something about the motion seemed terribly familiar, but Quoth cannot possibly place it. And I'm going to say that this is what is lending me to have more belief in the maybe that's Brayden, because Quoth is so intimately familiar with Brayden and his mannerisms and his gestures, his way of thinking, especially strategically, because of tack. But he can't place it because this setting is so much different
0: and it's really hard to say because all we know is that Quoth finds it familiar without being at all specific about how or what is familiar about it, right? It could be that it could also just be the time that he witnessed sender at the encampment where his family was killed. That's true. all of it is very difficult to place, like what is familiar about any of this, so I'm curious to see, you know, as we come to know more about this world, will this bit of foreshadowing actually come to pass or is this just fan theory? We'll find out one of these days.
1: So Quoth screams at Martin to shoot the tree. He finally does. And the arrow wedges firmly into the trunk of the massive oak. And Quoth goes and reaches towards one of the arrows that has missed the party, splits his mind. Yet again, and shoves it into the earth and screams, as above, so below, making a joke only someone from the university could hope to understand. The wind faded. There was a whiteness, a brightness, a noise. I was falling, and then nothing. And that's where we've chosen to leave it. And if you have been reading along in the book, you know that the next section we're going to start on starts with like a six paragraph little. Chapter 92.
0: It's a mini chapter. It's not even a page.
1: Nope. But instead of feeling like we wanted to give you all resolution, we're just going to leave you on. Oh my God, did he die?
0: Well, obviously, he's telling the story, so no.
1: And obviously, we are not done with the story yet. We are on page da, 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 686 out of 1107. Oh, okay. good plenty of time left to hear stories that are both harrowing and somewhat uncomfortable. Florian. And one of the dumbest parts, I'd say, of the whole thing is still coming up with the women of the Adem not understanding how children are made. Oh my god. Oh boy.
0: <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Man mothers? <clears throat> oh boy.
1: Oh boy. For the most part, love the books. Just I think that I'm not alone in thinking that that is dumber than a box of rocks.
0: Yeah, that one didn't age well.
1: I mean, I don't think it was great when it came out.
0: Yeah, it aged really badly the moment it was published.
1: Like a fine milk. Yeah. Anyway, that all being said, I think I got saddled with the Phrenemos.
0: You did. It's your turn for Phrenemos time.
1: Okay. Tempe just gonna have to say tempe and it's for the smallest amount of the story possible it's because he required Quoth to respect the dead at least his dead that's it i don't have much more than that
0: i mean it's a big action sequence so practical wisdom usually in this case revolves around your ability to survive
1: and Quoth is never our frenemos correct And Quoth does almost all of the action here.
0: That we can see, yeah.
1: Cool. All done.
0: Yeah, no need to belabor the point.
1: Do you have any other suggestions? No, not really. Okay.
0: Moving on, it's my turn for thing of the week. So this week, my suggestion is listen to music on vinyl. Like I found that when you're just, you know, out and about, digital music is great. Like, I love being able to just have an instant soundtrack when I get in the car that is exclusively of songs that I like. And I like being able to just cue that up and go. But there's something about like when I'm sitting in my room by myself wanting to read or just have some contemplative time, the meditative art of putting vinyl on the platter, putting the cue arm on, and then letting it go. There's something about the warmth to it all. I love just that feel to it. and I love the fact that vinyl is one of the greatest ways to actually have that sort of big experience of music that is both visual and auditory. Because in addition to the sound of the music itself, you have the actual artwork that is on album cover. Like album cover art is actually big. It's designed to be looked at. You know, you can actually read things. That's something that we've lost as music has gotten smaller.
1: I mean, if you think about it, even like the icon for our podcast, I've had to make sure that it is at least visually distinct enough to handle being absolutely tiny.
0: Yeah. With a vinyl, you've got at least a 12 by 12 inch square that an artist can do something on. You can actually read, you know, lyrics, see artwork, things like that. And then when we moved to CDs, it was a bit smaller because then it went down to about a four by four
1: bigger than that it's like six
0: by six A six by six and then like cassette tapes of course are tiny
1: right so we went vinyl cassette tapes because we're going to ignore eight track cds which are a little bit more real estate to mp3s which don't even have to have artwork associated with them
0: yeah and oftentimes if you do have artwork associated with that like an album art that shows up on your mp3 player it's going to be seen on a small screen Like, it's only going to take up a very small bit, maybe two by two on your phone.
1: That depends on how you're even listening.
0: Right. And it's just not the same. So having that physical side of things is really cool. Plus, if you get colored vinyl.
1: I was going to mention.
0: That gives you another cool visual element. I'm a sucker for that. You know, I love having brightly colored vinyl or transparent vinyl or Any number of interesting ways that you can actually have the records look. So it's not just plain black. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun way to collect things and to listen to music. And like any hobby, there is no ceiling to what you can spend on it. But it is a really cool way to experience music.
1: Well, that, I think, is awesome. Thank you. All right. And so that means that you also need to give us seven words from the book this time around.
0: I was spoiled for choice.
1: Oh my goodness, were you? I can remember the last time I was just like, ugh, oh, ugh. None of my choices are good. Ugh, ugh, ah, ugh. And then I went through and I'm like, highlight in green, highlight in green, highlight in green. Oh my god, why do you have so many choices? This isn't fair.
0: Don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> anyway, here are the ones that I've got highlighted. I need to know about our enemies. You must ask. They are my dead. May I look at your dead, Tempe? The rain started to come down harder. How many do you think there are? How close are we to their camp? We should try to finish it tonight. Then the words so nice he said them twice. How many do you think there are? What do you think we should do? Then we've got some of Martin's litany here. Telu, shelter me from iron and anger. Then Telu, son of yourself, watch over me. And the one I actually selected from Tempe here... No way that is of the Lathani. So that's what I picked out. You've got Words from Life. What do you have?
1: Actually, before we talk about Words from Life, I kind of want to go over your overall thoughts of this section because this is one of those capital I important parts of the book. So
0: what we learn about Kvothe is that fundamentally he is a pragmatist. And I don't mean that judgmentally at all. He is someone who, when the chips are down and his choices involve breaking a code to accomplish a goal or upholding a code and failing, he will break a code. That is how he works, for good or ill. And to be clear, I think that the story so far has justified that. In his life, following rules has seldom actually led to survival or thriving, or anything that would actually accomplish his goals, right? The codes have always just stood in his way, whether that is just the rules of the school, like at the university, or just local law enforcement, or anything like that.
1: Or societal rules or regulations.
0: They've done him no favors. They have constricted him. They've gotten in the way of him accomplishing his objectives. They've actively threatened his survival,
1: I mean, think about his entire time in Severn.
0: Yeah, hell, his entire time in Tarbian. Like, that's a formative time in his life. And what he's learned in that time is that rules don't matter. Fundamentally, they are not binding. Because people who want to accomplish their goals will break the rules. And it is not to say that Quoth is a bad person. It is that he does not have much use for societal mores or strictures or codes of being, whether this is some mysterious lithani or, you know, the rules of the university or just those unwritten rules of culture and society like he's seen at Severin. You know, they're all well and good, but when they get in the way of getting what Quoth wants, never once has it been in his interest to actually uphold them. And right now the chips are down. So yeah, he does something that we consider unsavory. We consider it grotesque. But if I look at his character and the way it's been shaped, why wouldn't he? It makes perfect sense to me. I can see the character logic there and I can empathize with it. I sometimes get impatient with petty rules and things that don't matter. Like I say, I am a materialist. I don't believe in the soul as a construct. I think that is something that we tell ourselves, but there's no evidence of it. And Quoth similarly is operating in a materialist worldview, which is to say it's meat. And if mutilating meat that does not have any agency, does not have any value, is what it takes to survive the night mutilate the meat and
1: not a euphemism
0: i don't have a problem with it
1: that's not specifically all i wanted to talk about though Mm -hmm. i wanted to talk to you about the bandit camp and the bandit leader where are you falling on those i know theories aren't always the most important thing in your brain but i think that this is an interesting space
0: i think my closest theory because yeah bandits stealing taxes on the highway seems like kind of small potatoes. But if we look at it as part of a larger systemic plot to essentially undermine any role of civil society and as a plot to undermine you know the rule of law or anything like that, I can see how that would work. I mean, really, this is the sort of thing that I could see maybe as part of a larger chess master type thing. If we look at the conditions in Noar, in the framing device versus what we see in Severin, in Noar, it's almost post apocalyptic, right? You have just these rampaging wars that sweep the countryside that yield little value to the people, no value to the people, and they're beset by bandits and almost as bad as the bandits if not worse are the tax collectors because at this point the taxes are just going to fund wars and they don't provide any value to civil servants and then When the tax money gets stolen or embezzled or any number of other things misused does not go back into things that yield value to the people. All that does is it just further grinds people down to the point where either A, they roll over or they fight back. I think if... My goal is to undermine civilization, to undermine these sorts of social structures that it props up specifically like the Talon Church, which exists primarily as basically it's a function of civilization. And what we know about the Chandrian first and foremost, it's not so much that they're evil, they're destructive, and fundamentally they're chaotic. They do not want a structured society they want anarchy and if they want anarchy they can afford to play this long game even though it seems like small potatoes so just a thought
1: that's fair do you have any thoughts about the whole cinder versus braden versus ash versus any of that or are you just content to wait
0: i think it is possible but i am content to wait I think that there's still room for misdirection in there, and I'm not willing to rule that out. And, you know, there's certainly been a lot of hints. Cinder, Ash, all of that stuff, and then Braden having similar mannerisms and having a slightly similar description. Yeah, I can buy that. But there's also enough room for that to not be the case. It's not a 100% nailed-down thing to me. I think we'll find out who and what Cinder... Braden, Ash, all of these people are in the next book whenever that comes out.
1: (laughs) We'll find out when we find out is my ultimate opinion.
0: Yeah, like I'm not saying that the fan theories are wrong. I'm just saying if they're right, yeah, it makes sense. If they're wrong, also wouldn't surprise me.
1: The thing I don't want is for the vision that was set up to be completely undone in order to be surprising.
0: Yeah, and I think the reason people like this this theory that Cinder and Braden and Ash are all the same person is that it makes a certain amount of narrative sense. There's a symmetry to it and it helps knit together a central mystery. However, with any good twist though, there's room for a misdirection in there and I'm curious to see what it is, but I only want that misdirection to be there if that was what was the plan all along.
1: Right. It's tough when you release your baby out into the world and then people start Trying to guess what's in your head about it, trying to assume, you know, the answer to your mystery. I think that Martin might also be going through this, where so many fan theories have hit the nail on the head that it takes all the wind out of your sails. It makes you second guess what your original plot was. It makes you worried that you're just going to release something out into the world that's going to be unfulfilling.
0: I think the problem is us. I mean, us as in fans. I agree. Online fans in particular. Like in the days before the internet, fan theories existed certainly, but they didn't promulgate nearly as quickly. And they only existed in small like-minded newsletters. And they were generally a small thing. And so if someone came up with a theory, you know, had figured something out, it didn't go very far. And that was that. With the internet, you know, in the early internet, it was mostly just on news groups. But even then, that still represented a fairly small segment of the overall readership of any given book. But like, I think that with the internet, all it takes is for one person to come up with something and then they can put it out on Reddit, or they can put it out on a fandom wiki or whatever. And then suddenly, it has viewership that pretty much the vast majority of people excited about the book are able to see. And then suddenly they are all talking about it. And it hits YouTube, then it hits podcasts. And then next thing you know, it's not just a small subset that maybe has figured it out. And to be clear here, if your thing is something that can't be figured out by someone reading the book very closely, it probably isn't actually a very good twist. The best twists are things that people can figure out that reward people for figuring them out.
1: We've just had a lot of time. And I think that that time is adding to the pressure. And I don't want to do that. I just want to enjoy the books because I enjoy the books.
0: Yeah. Readers have had a lot of time to go back and read it multiple times. And multiple people have been able to piece together things much more quickly than they would have. It's Not just linear hours, it's distributed hours.
1: We also have an instance of kind of convergent evolution where we have lots of different people finding the same things, latching on to the same things, learning and discovering and assuming and theorizing the same things, which means that we have almost certainly stumbled upon the correct answer.
0: Someone has anyway.
1: But I'm saying that if multiple people of their own accord are coming up with the same end, that it's very likely that that's what was telegraphed mm-hmm. and that that's the actual answer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I say, if it fits, people are going to latch onto it. And if you're going to do a misdirect on there, it also has to be something that fits when you see it all put together.
1: Right. Like one of my favorite movies in the whole wide world is Clue and everything fits together at the end
0: regardless of which ending it is.
1: And I love that. That all being said, it is my turn for seven words from life. Thank you all for listening to the end. My seven words are, I love having art on my walls. Aww. Yesterday, I put up some picture ledges, and I was able to finally put some art up that has been stuffed in a closet for years. I finally put up a Alice in Wonderland scroll that I bought at Comic-Con in 2019, dang it, I finally get to display some of these really just important pieces and not have to worry about taking them away or not feeling like it's worth putting them out. And so I'm very happy that my walls are no longer bare in my room.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things that I've really appreciated as our Spaces are coming together that we're having more personality to them. And it's been really nice. Every time I see that, it makes me smile.
1: I still have more work to do, but incremental progress is still progress.
0: Absolutely.
1: And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me.
0: And thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 92 through 94 through the lens of the limits of conventions.
1: We would like to thank our friend Shani Jang for our theme music.
0: And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring.
1: Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough.
0: And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough.
1: If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com waystonepod, where you can get early access to the pod and special bonus pods. Seriously, we are running a 14-day free trial, and I would just like people to listen to it. I don't really care. You can cancel afterward, please. Just listen. If you like The Sandman at all, we'd really love a listen. Okay, done begging. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses.
0: To one more day above the roses. Ding. Ding!
1: Well that I think is awesome. Thank you.
0: Well with that I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Yeah, oh no. No, oh, no we're no, not no, done. No, no, it. no, no. No, we're not even remotely done.
1: No.